This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The superwarming gas, methane, more than doubled in the atmosphere since 1750. Since 2007, methane is rising again, and it's steeply. It threatens to undo previous climate agreements and make the world much hotter sooner. Where is it coming from? Are we experiencing a methane emergency? Dr. Ewan Nisbet and his team lead the world in tracking methane. Under a UK program called MOYA, scientists in all corners of the world carefully capture flasks of air for Professor Nisbet's lab at Royal Holloway, University of London. Nisbet flies sampling aircraft over remote bogs in Africa, South America, and the Arctic, Add in satellite data, and a global methane picture emerges. From London, you and Nisbet, welcome back to Radio EcoShark. Well, it's good to talk to you again. Um, I'm sad that you're interested because it just means that something is going badly somewhere in the climate change world. Well, definitely here in BC, we had a heat event where it almost got to 50 degrees C or over 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Hundreds of people died. People just were not prepared for it. We have hardly any air conditioning here. The village of Lytton burned down. You know all that. Do you think that an increase in methane could be a factor in such extreme heat events coming so soon? Uh, I, I think every scientist you talk to will be extremely careful in uh, uh, ascribing particular events to particular things. So, um, uh, any any um, climate change scientist would be very very concerned to ascribe any particular event to any particular cause. It, it's just too difficult. But what we do know is that um, the climate warming driven by the greenhouse gases, it's first of all very strong, and the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report has shown just how how strong it is. But it's it's growing very fast at the moment. And, you know, we've had the Rio and Kyoto processes going back to the 1980s, really, and yet the problem is getting worse, not better. The international negotiations have certainly helped. Um, they've helped tremendously. It will be an awful lot worse. And we do have this one wonderful success, which is the Montreal Protocol on the ozone-depleting um, gases, which has also helped tremendously in the greenhouse gases. So there is a success. But in methane in particular, which I'm interested in, um, it's past 1,900 part per billion in the air, compared to about 700, 750 before humans started changing the air. Um, it's way, way out. And we had the strongest growth in the observational record just last, well, in 2020, um, the last full year that we've got detailed record of. And, you know, its growth seems to be accelerating. So it's very scary indeed. Well, seeing dangerous changes in the atmosphere, the Royal Society organized a discussion meeting about it uh, for October 2020. That had to be called off because of the pandemic. Did you hold it in October 2021? Yes, we did. Um, online, unfortunately. Um, and that's been published and nearly all the papers are open access so you can look at them um, in two volumes of the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which is actually the world's oldest scientific journal 
Captain Cook, if you look back in 17 something, um, found out where Canada was in, in that. He, was, he located the um, longitude of Newfoundland by looking at an eclipse. So the Phil Trans Royal Society is a very old journal. Um, and what we were looking at was the, the question is, is the warming feed, feeding the warming? Much of the recent rise in methane has been apparently driven by biological sources. We're not absolutely sure. But the reason we say this is that for 200 years, from about 1750 right through to 2007, methane in the air was being pr progressively enriched in what we call carbon-13. Now, carbon has different forms. There's stable carbon-12, stable carbon-13, and then you've probably heard of carbon-14, which is radioactive and used by archaeologists to date things. Um, but the carbon-12-13 ratio is a sort of isotopic signature. And methane that's emitted by biological sources tends to be a little richer in carbon-12, whereas methane that comes from uh, fossil fuels tends to be a little richer in carbon-13. It's a bit more complex because some tropical grasses, and that includes maize and sugar, which are human foods, um, are also um, a bit up on the carbon-13. But if you've got the carbon isotopic ratios, and you know where you've sampled the methane, whether it's in the North Pole or somewhere in the equator, you can then ask yourself, where is all this new methane coming from? Um, now, methane only lasts in the air for about nine years. That's its replacement time. And so there are obviously big new sources coming in, um, which seem to be biological sources because the methane in the air is getting a bit more carbon-12 rich. Because there, there, there has been this debate. There have been millions of people have watched videos about the Arctic methane threat. We have the Arctic Methane Emergency Group. We have the two Russian scientists who are warning about a seabed uh, possibilities. And yet it seems that both you and Rob Jackson from Stanford Earth are for now ruling out the Arctic as a source of this increasing methane. Not ruling out, but I was actually probably the first person to point out the Arctic problem. Um, papers I wrote in the Canadian Journal in, in the 1980s, and there was also somebody down in Scripps about the same time thinking about the same problem. Um, I'm very aware of the Arctic, and we work in the Arctic a lot. We get samples from the Arctic all the time, um, and we've been flying in the Arctic. Um, but you can say several things. First of all, overall, since this new growth started in 2007 and accelerating more recently, um, much of that has been led from the tropics. We have NOAA in particular have a global methane network, and you can see where the growth is, is strongest. And it's really the tropics and the subtropics, the, the northern subtropics and, and the equatorial, and to some extent the southern tropics as well. Um, it's only one or two years, like 2007, where the Arctic has been leading. And even when the Arctic has led, it's looked like wind blowing from the northern forests. Secondly, um, we've been flying missions up in the Arctic. And when you pick up summer air there, that has the signature, the isotopic signature, this carbon-12-13 ratio, of um, northern wetlands. Um, 
and when you backtrack the uh, you pick it up as on your plane and then you run the wind backwards and you find out where it's come from and it's typically the Siberian wetland now in the winter if you fly missions in the arctic then the um the methane plumes the enriched methane air that you can fly through air that's richer in methane where's that coming from and that enriched methane air has the um carbon isotope pressure of um Siberian gas fields, which are some of the world's biggest gas fields. So it looks like in the Arctic, the, the, the winter emissions are coming from the gas fields when everything is frozen. And in the summer, it's primarily coming from the wetlands. Now, there are emissions coming from um, permafrost sources and so on. But a lot of that actually goes through soil and it gets eaten by um, methanotrophic bacteria. So the Arctic's a danger point, yes bad one and it's got big emissions the northern forest canadian forest and you know a beaver is a monster methane machine beavers are absolutely wonderful but they pull carbon into wetlands and then they make wetland and wetland swamps rotting vegetation makes methane so the northern forests are making but then you go to the tropics and two things are happening here um first of all there are a lot more people in the tropics and people need food and the, the world's cow superpower is India. Um, the belt of moist Central Africa, I'm African, um, is um, very, very um, dependent on cattle for food, pasture lands, not arable lands. So um, the, the huge populations of cattle. And many of these areas like East Africa are getting warmer and wetter. A cow is basically a, warming, a walking wetland. The cow's tummy is a wetland. Then the, the, um, the natural wetlands, and they're huge ones in Amazonia and in the Congo drainage, the Nile drainage, and in the Zambezi drainage. Very, very big wetlands. We've been flying over these wetlands and seeing really huge emissions. Uh, one example is the Banguiulu wetlands, which you've probably never heard of. But me going to school in Zimbabwe, Bangweulu was where we always wanted to go. It was in the north of um, our then federation. Um, it's where David Livingston died, who's Zambia's national hero. Um, it's also um, where the First World War ended, which you probably don't know. In, um, it took a long time for the German army, and they were attacking Lusaka in Zambia, um, to realise that the war had ended in, in Flanders. So, um, yeah, they'd better, they'd better lay down their arms in Zambia. Um, so Banguilu is important. But the Banguilu wetlands emit nearly as much methane as Britain. In Bolivia and Amazonia, um, there's some wetlands in uh, northeastern Bolivia. They probably emit more, and we've been flying uh, planes over that as well. We borrowed the British Antarctic Survey's planes, uh, or a plane, one of their planes, a Tornata, um, as it was flying up to Calgary to get serviced. And we measured these huge emissions there. So it's important. As you point out in the Philosophical Transactions paper, the tropical nations are not simply bystanders, as they are largely for CO2. And But is there anything really that those nations can do to control these very large sources? Uh, I need to be very careful because you know, I'm African, I have Indian relatives, I know how important cattle are. They're culturally important and they're vital for food. Um, it's really, really central. But you can do a great deal in the tropics. Um, and 
uh, methane is rather different from CO2. In CO2, uh, it's fairly straightforward what the problems are. It's, it's the, basically the richer nations, and I'm including China in this, um, which is nowadays a developed nation. Um, and, of course, China is the biggest emitter, um, India the second biggest. So in CO2, it's really very obvious that we need to do things about the coal industry and we need to do things about the oil and gas industry as well. In methane, much more subtle. Um, first of all, um, a lot of it is, and, and particularly the recent growth is coming from the tropics. Um, it includes food as well as energy. So um, energy is important. Um, gas emissions are well over 100 million tonnes um, or energy emissions. But agriculture um, probably emits more. What can you do? Um, Here's somewhere where the, the tropical countries can buy in. Now, for most tropical countries that I've been to, and I've been to most of them probably, um, cattle are very, very important culturally, as well as in food production. Um, I have Indian relatives. I know how central cattle are. Um, they feed India. Huge amounts of India's food come from pasture land. Cattle in Africa, Central Africa, are absolutely vital. And that, again, is from pasture land. If you try to persuade Africa to go vegan, um, they've got to abandon their pasture land and then intensify their agriculture and probably cut down a lot more forest. That, that's not a, a sensible way to go forward. What you can do, though, and what really struck us in, in our flights over Africa, is you can tackle a lot of much simpler things. First of all, there's very, very widespread fires, and both in India and Africa, there's intense air pollution from burning crop waste. Now, here, um, I'm, I'm in Britain now, um, even in Britain in the 1970s and 80s, there was incredible air pollution from crop waste fires. You know, when you've cut down your, harvested your maize or whatever you've done, or, um, you have all the rest of it, the maize stalks and so on. What do you do with it? Well, in Africa, you burn it. And then uh, you get incomplete combustion. You make a great deal of methane um, and you make an enormous amount of air pollution. Your, your soil nutrients go up into smoke that smoke rises five, 6,000 feet, a couple of thousand meters. Uh, it gets entrained in, in the winds, and it winds up in a thunderstorm in the North Atlantic or the South Atlantic, depending on where you are in Africa. It feeds a lot of happy fish because the nutrients come down and they feed the fish. Or if you're, uh, the world is a bit luckier, it goes across to Amazonia and fertilizes Amazonia. Africa loses. So we need to do something about crop waste fires. India is trying very hard to reduce fires for air pollution reasons. And there are lots of things you can do. At the very least, you can, you can actually do what they do in Britain and just burn it into electricity. These are things you can do. So crop waste fires is, are, are a good start. Another thing you can do, um, all over Africa now, they're, they're gigantic new cities with um, you know, cities like Kinshasa and, and Lagos are some of the biggest on the, on the planet. Um, and many of the, the new cities in Africa, and I'm not going to name any of them, um, have enormous um, 
what you would probably call a landfill in Canada. Um, I would just call it a dump, <laughs> um, where you dump everything. Many of these are burning. Um, they have huge emission plumes on them. All you need to do is put um, a few centimeters of soil on top. That's not high tech. Yeah. In, in the UK, they've reduced landfill methane emissions tremendously by um, high tech stuff, putting pipes in, and they actually burn off the methane. Landfills make methane. In the UK, they burn it all off and turn it into electricity. Well, that's great. And it's cheaper than buying um, oil or coal from somebody else. Um, but in Africa, they just, uh, many African countries, they, they just let it burn. And, of course, that causes, again, air pollution, big methane emissions. Uh, the simple answer is put some soil over. A slightly more complex answer is to pipe out the methane and turn it into electricity. So just by tackling landfills, tackling um, crop waste fires, doing that sort of thing, you can really make a good starting point on your methane emissions. The other really big thing we can do is cut, um, obviously cut the fossil fuels, which is what many countries are trying to do. Um, at least cut the emissions from the fossil fuels, even if you don't cut the fossil fuels. I would obviously like to do both. And there we're being helped tremendously by technology, particularly in the gas industry, which is actually very smart. And there um, leaks are money. You, know, you leak your gas, your, your profit goes up. Um, I think there's, it's hard to tell, but even in, in um, for example, US frackers, some of the frackers were releasing 9-10% of their gas. Well, you know, that's crazy. Um, the technology is getting so much better for detecting gas leaks that I think the uh, there's very, very strong pressure on the gas industry to reduce emissions. The oil industry flares, um, in many places, flares or just vents gas. I, I know in parts of Canada where you get um, fairly heavy oil, they just vent the gas, or they used to. Now, obviously, legislation in Canada is doing things about that. But there are wide parts of the world where flaring is still pervasive, and there's, uh, you don't flare the whole thing, um, methane comes off. And I've flown over Africa at night again and again, seen these huge flares, which just seem immensely wasteful. Um, and then finally, there's the coal industry. And coal um, emits methane at pretty much all stages in the mine, where it's very dangerous and blows up mines. Um, it's vented then by um, ventilation shafts from mines. Now, you can actually remove the methane in, those that in the air from the ventilation shafts. And that you can do by simple chemistry. Um, you can also um, shut down the coal industry, which I'd love to do. But um, I'm well aware that how important that is. South Africa has enormous employment from the coal industry. And it needs to cut, shut down its coal industry. It causes pollution. It's it's very, very damaging to an agriculturally fragile area. Um, but it's going to take a generation to shut down the coal industry. Um, even here in the UK, in Scotland, they're still yelling about Margaret Thatcher shutting the coal industry in the 1980s. 
you know, it's it's immensely difficult socially. Or the the other things you can do, which I think in the near future we'll be able to do, and that's actually removing methane from particular places. And for example, in the dairy industry, um, or in dairy um, dairy farms, where you um, in part of the season you bring the cows into barns. You know, in the, in the cold countries, you do that in the winter. Um, in other countries, you may do it in the dry season. Um, we've been measuring methane in, in barns, and it, it gets up to 100 or 200 part per million, whereas ambient air is 2 part per million, or 1.9 part per million. And at, at um, uh, 100 to 200 parts per million, that's a target for removal. Um, it's if if you can, it's quite likely we can actually develop the technology to just pump out the air and then remove the methane. You've got to be careful. So if you spend a lot of energy removing the methane, um, then you're emitting CO two somewhere else. On Radio EcoShock, you are listening to Professor Yuan Nisbet explaining why the intense global warming gas methane is rising and what could be done. Follow up at our website at ecoshock.org. Well, there are some serious uh, scientists at work at this. Rob Jackson, uh, he's the chair of the Global Carbon Project. And, of course, you've got the former chief scientist, Sir David King, with the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge. They're working toward some sort of technology to remove methane. They'd like to go right back to pre-industrial levels if they could. They think it's that serious that it's escalating. It's it's a very tough call here. Removing methane from ambient air is, I don't think, on. You would use so much energy. If you're going to use that energy, it would be far better to just replace coal mining and not generate the energy in the first place. However, if you locally have energy from, say, solar or wind sources, and you can't just use that to displace CO2 emission from some coal-burning power station, then if the methane's about 100 part per million in the air, in other words, in a concentrated place like a cattle barn, then it may well be worth removing it. You can remove it by lots of different processes. The very simplest is just have some very bright sunlight and titanium dioxide paint. Paint your roof white somewhere in the tropics, and, and that will remove a little bit of methane. And so that's very low energy. But more high energy is if you heat the air up to... Um, couple of hundred degrees and, or several hundred degrees and pass it over an iron oxide, that removes. However, it's a bit, bit crazy to heat it to stop global warming, if you think about it. Uh, the global warming is all about heating air. In other words, it's inefficient. So the, there's some very complex trade-offs here. But where there's a lot of methane in the air, it's probably worth doing if you've got a cheap non-greenhouse electricity close by. And for example, on a farm, you could have a wind turbine or something close by your cattle barn or solar power on the roof. And there you could probably remove quite a bit of the methane locally. You could certainly do that from, say, a manure tank or something like that, where there's much higher amounts of methane there. And there are lots of different technologies. I, I think this is going to come. And it's applicable particularly in, in uh, heavily populated areas. So we're in a methane emergency. What do you make of the global methane pledge signed by some countries at the COP26 talks in Scotland? 
I think it's enormously important. It's a real step forwards. Um, it's going to do something. First of all, the good side to it is that it commits a, a large number of countries, including a lot of tropical countries, to do their best about this. If you look back to the, the Montreal Protocol on ozone, the initial protocol was pretty weak. Yeah, it was a statement of intention. And then a bit later, and I'm going to mention here um, somebody called Sir Crispin Tickell, who's just died in his funerals this week. He was very important because he talked to Margaret Thatcher, the, the UK Prime Minister at the time, who had, she was a good scientist. And she sat down, I was told, and read the papers. She understood the papers. And then she went and persuaded uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush the first that they were going to do this. And the result of that was the second, what was called the London Amendment, and then there was one in Copenhagen as well. And they made the ozone treaty work. I think the Global Methane Pledge is the same sort of thing. At the moment, it's really a statement of intent. But then a few layers later, if it's going to follow the ozone treaty, you'll get some real hard teeth into it. And the ozone treaty has worked. It's been the best thing we've done, not just for ozone, but for the greenhouse, because these gases are also very important greenhouse gases. So I see the methane pledge as a sign of hope for the future. Now, the countries that didn't join are very important countries. There's China, India, Australia, huge coal mining countries, South Africa. Russia didn't join either, I don't think. And Russia, yeah. These are enormously important countries. But if you look at the ozone treaty, initially there was not much support from India and China either. And luckily, George Bush and Thatcher got together, and Tikhil was um, on the UN Security Council. He got on extremely well with the other permanent members. They used to go and have meals at his with him regularly. And they got together, and they did something about it. And they realized it was important. In China and India's interests, the, these are probably the countries that will suffer most from climate change. Very big populations. In many parts of them, they've got areas which will suffer a lot if, from very slight changes in climate. It's very much in their interests. India, what can they do? They can stop crop burning. Good starter. You know, that's easy. They do need to shut down their coal industry. Um, it's enormous employment. It's going to take decades. But they're already getting to the situation where their coal-fired power is more expensive than alternatives. So it's becoming a stranded asset. That's true in China as well. Coal is becoming a stranded asset. China is trying to switch to natural gas, which is why gas prices are rising all over the place. You know, China has really enormous problems, but it's very much in China's interest to cut the methane emissions. And they can do that by tackling landfills, big landfills in India and China, which are emitting an awful lot. They can easily be tackled by tackling the small thing. Do the small things first. But there was a 2020 paper by Rob Jackson, and, and Pep Canadell was involved in it, and they found that we are, with this methane, on track to hit 4.5 degrees C by the end of the century. And that means 10-year-olds today could experience some sort of climate catastrophe. You know, you're talking about processes that will take decades, and, and that is realistic. I, I've been to some of these countries. I know what you're talking about, but... Do you think we have that time? Is methane going to give us that time? Martin Manning, who's in New Zealand, in a paper that uh, I was involved in, pointed out actually that methane is the gas that's most divergent from the expectation of the Paris Agreement. 
that's partly just the function of economic downturns um, and COVID shocks and so on on CO2. But, but methane, of all of the greenhouse gases, is the one that's most divergent from what was hoped for in Paris. I think in the short term, by short term, I mean five to 10 years, we can make a fairly hefty dent in emissions by taking things like landfill and crop fires and vents from coal mines and so on, and stopping gas leaks. And the gas industry is actually trying very hard. So over the next 10 years, I think we can make a pretty hefty dent in the methane budget just by tackling those things. Over 20 years, this is when we really need to get to grips with coal mining. And that's obviously going to be complex and very difficult for the coal mining uh, countries. But I think we can do, and I think that shift is going to be hastened by things like solar and wind power getting cheaper and by battery technology and energy storage getting better and also by the shift to um, electric cars, which automatically brings you a lot of batteries as well, which you can use for energy storage. Uh, I think cars are going to be more than just cars. I think they're also going to help with your home electricity quite soon. You, know, you charge up at midnight when, when there's a lot of wind around in Britain um, in the North Sea. And then you discharge. Um, if you're not taking your car out that day, you'll just discharge from your car into your house and run your tumble dryer in, in the daytime. That sort of thing's going to happen. We're going to be much more sophisticated. I'm, I'm actually very hopeful that within about a couple of decades, we can probably bring methane down. Methane emissions are roughly 600 million tonnes a year. We can probably bring that down to 500 million tonnes, maybe within a decade or so, maybe down to 400 million tonnes in 20, in 25 years. I, I think that is doable. We're helped by the fact that the lifetimes are about a bit over nine years, so that our past sins are forgiven because that's destroyed by the sun. We've just got to stop sinning right now. Unlike CO2, where your past sins pile up and you've got a much more difficult problem. So... Let's tackle the methane problem without forgetting about the CO2 problem, which is the long-term problem. From Royal Holloway University in London, we have been speaking with world methane expert Professor Ewan Nisbet. I will post links to follow up on this key science in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Ewan Nisbet, thank you for sharing your valuable time with our listeners. Well, thanks a lot. It's been very good talking to you. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Welcome to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio and Radio Ecoshock. My name is Brent Ragsdale. Today we're going to talk with two professors from different colleges, universities here in the United States that are working on a group called the Planetary Limits Academic Network, or PLAN. They are Dr. Melody LaHue from Kansas State and Dr. Tom Murphy from um, University of California, San Diego. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, nice to have you. So I understand that you have three other professors that are part of this kickoff for what you're calling the Planetary Limits Academic Network or PLAN. Tom, I think I'm going to have you just kind of go through and lay out the case why we have planetary limits and 
what that means to us uh, as humans and what we need to do about it going forward. It's a big subject, and it's a subject that we're all so embedded into that we, we can't see the forest for the trees, in a sense. And I like to think of our current epic, uh, our current era, as a being like a fireworks show. It's very exciting. There are a lot of things going on. We're dazzling each other with all the things that we can do. And we've only ever known this mode of existence. We've never even met anybody. Even the oldest person we met when we were a kid only knew this part of the story of, of human history. So it's understandable that we would have a huge blind spot around how unusual this period in history is. Fireworks shows end. We know that about them. But if you've never seen even the beginning of it, it's always been going on. It's hard to understand that, that it's something that ends. And what I'm really talking about is that we're spending the inheritance of Earth's ecosystems that we just sort of stumbled onto as we occupied this, this planet. Not to say that we came from elsewhere, but you know, as we came into our modern existence on this planet, we had this you know, tremendous resource base all across the planet. And the story has been, let's exploit that as fast as humanly possible without much consideration to where that goes. And so if you look at what's happening now, we've got forests that are less than half of what was you know, originally on the planet. Uh, aquifers are being depleted. We've got collapse of fisheries. We've got soil degradation. We've got turning some areas into desert. We're chopping down rainforests. It's, it's pretty global in terms of our impact. And we can, I like relating it to inheritance spending because we know that that's not a long-term solution, that if you're spending an inheritance very quickly, what happens when it's done? <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to have to get a job. It's going to get harder. We're kind of heading toward a full Earth scenario. All of our history, all of our narratives, all of our understanding has been developed in a period when we had a frontier, when we had a, an empty earth, as it, as it were. And that story is just not the right story for going forward. We're, we've never had 8 billion people on the planet. We've never seen this level of standard of living that's only increasing and growing in a per capita sense across the world. So the pressures on our ecosystem are, are tremendous. And I like to think of the ecosystem, you know, a lot of people think, ah, well, I don't really get outside much and I don't really care. But that's our life support machine. We, we really cannot survive without a, a healthy earth. It's as if we're chewing on the power cord that goes to our life support system. And it tastes good. We love it. It's, it's fun. We're really good at chewing on it. We're uh, proud of what we can do in terms of dis destruction of this power cord. I'm worried about where this goes. And I don't hear enough discussion about these realities to set my mind at ease. Yeah, that's a good introduction to your paper and the, and the predicament we're in. And Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm my name is Tom Murphy. I'm at University of California, San Diego. I've uh, been a professor in the physics department for a number of years and mostly focused on astrophysics research. Um, a lot of that time spent testing general relativity by shooting a laser at the moon and measuring to millimeter precision the distance between Earth and moon to understand the shape of the moon's orbit and thus how gravity works is the fundamental question. 
but I've come to realize that that's not very important stuff uh, compared to the challenges that we're facing in this century. And I'll say that I have been a fan of your blog that you've written for, I think, a little over 10 years called Do the Math. I've read many of those blog posts and learned a lot from that. And I've also downloaded your your new textbook. I know that you've taken a lot of that content from those blog entries from 10 years ago and put this into a really useful text for people to teach sustainable kinds of uh, information. So who are the other three people that are in your network? So I'll just go ahead and quickly uh, introduce the uh, other members of the, we kind of see ourselves as sort of the, the core or the leadership team of the, the network. Ben McCall, uh, his background is in chemistry and he's also an astrophysicist. And he's currently a professor of sustainability at the University of Dayton, which of course is in Ohio. And then we have Dave Murphy. He's an environmental scientist and is currently at St. Lawrence University, which is located in upstate New York. And then we have Tom Love, who is an anthropologist, and he's uh, an emeriti professor at Linfield University, which is located in Portland, Oregon. And so we all have a very diverse background. Dave Murphy has done some really good interviews on a podcast called The Energy Transition Show that I have caught and have have appreciated as well. And I'll try to put that in our show notes as well. So the five of you went together and wrote an academic paper. And I see that it's in a journal that's called the Energy Research and Social Science Journal. And the name of the paper is Modernity is Incompatible with Planetary Limits, Developing a Plan for the Future. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Again, you're listening to Eco Radio KC, and my guests today are um, Professors uh, Melody LeHue and Tom Murphy, and we're talking about the Planetary Limits Academic Network. So, Tom, I think you've given us a pretty good introduction to your paper. I'll say that you, you have not many pictures and graphs in your paper, but you do include one that this is radio, so we have to describe it. It kind of looks like just a little blip. It's, it's, a, it's a graph with, of energy consumption for humanity that what we have done in the last thousand years and maybe what we're going to do in the next thousand years. And there's a big blip around the year 2000. If we look at how much energy humans have spent over the course of history, it started out being very, very small. The population was low, the, you know, it was just muscle and firewood. It was uh, animals on drafting, uh, draft animals, pulling plows, human labor, and, and firewood. That's where energy came from. And then we discovered fossil fuels and started using them in this prodigious manner so that the energy graph shoots up. It's, it's one of these hockey stick curves. It just goes bananas. About 150 years ago, it just rockets upward. As I said before, that's the fireworks show. That's what we've all known. That's our entire life history and that of our grandparents. What we recognize, though, is that the fossil fuels, in any case, are finite. They're not going to last forever. We're roughly maybe halfway through or a third of the way through. It's debatable. You can get different numbers. But but it doesn't change the story that we're a significant fraction of the way through and that the fossil fuel curve, if we were to continue plotting this, goes right back towards zero 
for the next thousands of years. When you look at this plot of energy use over thousands of years, at least in the context of fossil fuels, it is, as you say, a blip. It's just a spike, a pulse. I've heard it called the carbon pulse. It invites a huge question as to what comes for the next few thousand years. Are we back to a primitive lifestyle? Because that's what we know happens in a low energy or did happen in a low energy situation before. So it really begs that uncomfortable question. There's a symmetry to this curve that it's low, it peaks, we're up near the high point right now, and then it goes back low. So what does that mean for the future? It doesn't put us on the definite path toward a primitive future. We could, in principle, use other you know, renewable energy resources like solar and wind to maintain some decent level that's not not down at zero, but it's a graph that at least makes you really think about the fact that our future is not guaranteed to look like the present. In fact, it's very unlikely to. It, it, well, I would say it can't. Another point that you that you made before the break was about how technology is only going to go so far, and there's a, a tendency to believe in progress, kind of like a secular religion of sorts. For modern people. I think there's certainly a camp of people that think that the solution is going to become for us to become a multi-planetary species. And since there two of you are astrophysicists, you included a, a little bit of talk about how difficult and, and actually unrealistic that is. You want to walk us through your, your chickpea star scale kind of a analogy there to, to, to show how difficult that would be? Yeah, and the reason we do this is because I think most people form their impression of space through entertainment. And watching shows, you can zip around from one planet to the next nebula to, you know, whatever. And it's it's all very convenient. It's just like a short bus ride. And it's so different from that. It's also, in, in these movies, resources are never far away. A planetary surface or a, a spaceship or a station, never very far away. But the reality is that it's, and it's almost mind-bogglingly empty. If a star is the size of a grain of sand, in our local environment, those grains of sand are 20 miles apart. So they are not close. There's a lot of emptiness in between. And a solar system on that scale would be the size of a bedroom. So you've got your, your grain of sand in the middle of the bedroom shining luminously. And specks of dust, like maybe... 10, you know, specks of dust somewhere in the bedroom. It's a lot of empty space. In terms of resources, people talk about mining asteroids and getting resources from space. Well, first of all, Earth is a big chunk of resource that we're sitting right on that we don't have to spend a lot of energy to get to. But if this were an economically viable strategy, we'd be all over it already. It's not that we don't have the technology to do this kind of thing. It's just infeasible. It's just prohibitively expensive in terms of energy and cost. So, you know, I like to think of a nickel, a U.S. nickel is a nice little chunk of nickel, and it's about worth five cents. It's not worth about five cents. So if you were to get that chunk of nickel from an asteroid, you can expect to pay, you know, maybe a few thousand dollars or something. I'm, I'm making up the number, but I'm just illustrating that didn't take Earth for granted. That's our real treasure, as you call it in your paper. It's the real treasure. Let's talk about growth. That seems to be like the next section in your paper. 
that people seem to be programmed to want growth and that our whole society is set up on supplying people with the goods and services, the increase in goods and services that they seem to want. Can that go on? Can that keep going at the rate it's going? Um, so obviously not. Uh, it, it's, as I say, the finite planet and the inheritance spending mode. So, you, you know, what you can afford to do during the inheritance spending mode is completely different from what you can afford to do long term. As I said, the pressures on our system, the rate at which we're extracting resources from the earth have never been as high as they are today. And it's, it's starting to take its toll. We can see it in many domains. And that can't go on very long. And anything that's a constant growth behaves like an exponential. And even at a few percent per year, that amounts to a factor of 10 every century. So we're having trouble keeping it together at today's rate. You see all kinds of failures in all kinds of systems. So can you imagine a century from now having things be 10 times bigger than they are today in terms of scale of extraction? It, it's hard to imagine even maintaining this level for another century. We're already running into all kinds of feedbacks from, from Earth saying, no, I can't take it any longer. And the idea that we would just keep expanding the scale as we have for the past several generations is really on its face kind of ridiculous. The idea that we should keep training up engineers to make more products and architects to design bigger and bigger houses and ag economists to develop more and more feed for more and more cattle for more and more people. We can't keep doing this. We've, we've got to figure out a way to curb that growth. I'd say either we do it or nature will do it for us. I would rather be in control of that situation and do it wisely and justly because if we don't take control of that situation or at least acknowledge the, the perils that we're putting ourselves in, we can't be sure that it's going to be a pleasant ride down. You have put out this paper and have it on a website. Can you give the website where people could find this, this academic paper? It's a planetary limits, all one big amalgamation, no punctuation or anything, just planetarylimits.net. Have you had any success in recruiting other academics? Have you been contacted? It's been quite amazing, at least from my perspective. Uh, as soon as the paper was published, we started getting people interested in joining. And I believe we have about 60 members so far. And they are from a range of different disciplines. When someone indicates that they're interested in being a member, we have like a series of questions and, and information that we ask them to you know, give us some sort of response to, so we can understand where they're coming from and, and what their concerns are. What's, I think, really compelling is that you have all of these people from very different disciplines, but we all are basically concerned about the same things. In some ways, that kind of validates that, yes, this is something that we need to address because it's not just a few of us that are like, oh, my goodness, uh, we need to figure out how are we going to move forward as a society where we can have quality of life but at the same time not consume resources to the degree that we have been consuming them. 
you have all of these different disciplines, people from all these different disciplines that are concerned about the same thing. We're uh, right now just kind of growing the membership and then we're going to start thinking about, okay, now what's our first step? What are we going to do in order to try to address and do some actionable research that might result in some, if not solutions, but at least a clearer understanding of, of what we need to tackle first. And I would like to add that the five of us who started this recognize that we don't have the answers. We don't have enough perspective. We're not broad enough that even though the five of us are from fairly different areas, it's, that's a great start to the network. But we really need economists and humanists and psychologists and people in communications. And it, it, it really is everything. So we haven't really set out a firm plan yet, even though our, our network name is Plan, uh, because we wanted to gather those folks first to help us define what we collectively want to do. The other thing I'll say is that, as Melody mentioned, we share a lot of similar concerns, and I, I just want to address the fact that all of us are concerned about climate change, but we tend to see much deeper than that. That's just one element, one symptom of much more intricate underlying disease. It's kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's what everybody sees in plain sight, and it focuses so much attention of the academic world onto climate change. But we think, oh my gosh, you know, yes, that's important, but if you don't solve the systemic problems of growth and resource exploitation and inheritance spending, et cetera, we're, we're still going to fail in our energy systems. We're still going to fail. So. My view is even if climate change miraculously weren't an issue, like for instance, carbon dioxide didn't interact with infrared radiation, and so there was no you know, climate cost to burning fossil fuels, I wouldn't be much less worried about our predicament this century just because all of the, the toll on Earth's ecosystem is just staggering. We have species loss even without climate change. We have habitat destruction, and, and so I think we're, we're all climate change aware, but our concerns run deeper. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. We're talking about the Planetary Limits Academic Network. Tom Murphy, you just gave us a good segue into the fact that the other academics that are showing interest in your network seem to recognize that our problems are greater than just climate change. Climate change is one facet of, of an overarching problem. I noticed in your paper that you have your preliminary set of foundational principles. Can you go through those for us? We decided against in the paper to frame this as we originally had as kind of principles that we find to be self-evident. We had some parallels to kind of a the beginnings of, of the United States uh, and some of its declarations. But these are, in some sense, truths that we do find to be self-evident, and we laid them out just to make sure that the people who we wanted to attract were basically on the same page and had no major disagreements. And so this list, uh, number one, is humans are a part of nature, not apart from nature. Number two, Non-renewable materials cannot be harvested indefinitely on a finite planet. Number three, the ability of Earth's ecosystems to assimilate pollution without consequences is finite. Number four, energy throughput is essential to all human activities, including the economy. Number five, technology is a tool for deploying, not creating energy. 
Number six, fossil fuel combustion is the primary cause of ongoing global climate change. Number seven, exponential growth, whether of physical or economic form, must eventually cease. Number eight, today's choices can simultaneously create problems for and deprive resources from future generations. Number nine, human behavior is consciously and unconsciously shaped by mental models of culture that, while mutable, impose barriers to change. And number 10, apparent success for a few generations during a massive drawdown of finite resources says little about chances for long-term success. You didn't talk much in your paper about potential pushback, but I would think that there's a tendency for people to deny things that they don't want to think about. That seems to be human nature. And then there's also the potential for uh, people to feel threatened in terms of their livelihood or their profession or what they stand for. One thing that I highlighted in your paper, entrenched institutions will resist change and their leaders will argue departure from the present trajectory will threaten prosperity and happiness. Are you seeing any of that reaction so far? I have not had anyone comment to me uh, and give any kind of pushback as of yet. I understand why people want to deny and why they want to might want to disagree. But, you know, the scientific evidence is there that these changes are happening. Our ecosystems are, are being threatened. Well, I think it's absolutely right that we've got a lot of financial and, and power interests that like the way things are. Even if you're not enjoying that kind of prosperity today, you have made maybe life plans based on this set of rules and the way we run things today. And you don't want the rules to suddenly change because maybe your plans don't make much sense then. And so it makes a, a lot of sense to me that any massive change is going to see a lot of resistance. And I think the point that I want to make is we're not advocating for some voluntary massive change just because we have certain values or ideals. It's really something that we can't control. It's something that nature is going to do for us if we don't do it ourselves. We don't see it as much as a, of a choice, except in that we have a choice of how we interact with, with this impending crisis. And we'd like to be smart about it and like to acknowledge the, the dangers and not just pretend that they're not there. The one group that would really like this would be the students, would be the young people who have grown up in this environment and realizing that we're up against planetary limits and seeing a lot of inaction in terms of solutions from the people, the vested interests. I, I would think they're just hungry to hear some reality and some ideas towards mitigating the problems and making things better going forward. Is that, is that the way it is? Today's generation, they all know that there's a problem. And so they come to us knowing this, but they haven't quite made the link that their own behavior is a major contributor to the, to the problem. We try to help them understand how their decisions and their behaviors are part of the, the problem. We are preparing these young people to go out and work in an industry that has a huge impact on the environment, not just climate change, but water pollution and waste and you know, every aspect of the degradation of our planet. Our industry, the, the fashion, the textile and apparel industry, 
uh, is a major contributor. And so we are preparing the, these young people to be aware of the problem and to start seeking ways to do things differently so when they are out there in the industry, they can be agents of change instead of just falling into the status quo. The young generation, are they want to make a difference. Uh, and so, so they are very receptive, I find. Yeah, and if I might echo some of that in what I see, I no longer have to make a hard case to the students that growth is going to end. They, they already get that, and that's a big improvement. But I am also disappointed, similar to what Melody said, they don't really necessarily understand how their own actions and expectations play into this. So I've seen a lot of angst against, for instance, billionaires, but they're ordering stuff on Amazon all the time. It's, it's sort of ironic that if you were to take all the money that the billionaires have and redistribute it to the broader population, you would only see an increase in energy demand and resource exploitation because people would want to spend that money on stuff. And that's where the problem is. It's, it's our stuff. And I've had students, basically, they get that there's a problem, they want to see big change, but they point the finger somewhere else. There are plenty of places to point fingers. I mean, they're not wrong to point out some of the problems, but they don't want to modify their own behaviors. They don't want to take fewer, shorter showers or anything or turn down their thermostat or change their dietary habits because that's very personal and they, they feel like they deserve all of those comforts and it's the billionaires and so forth that need to, need to do the paying, not them. So again, the website for any academics or others who are interested is planetarylimits.net. My name is Brent Ragsdale. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you. Yes, right. thank you for inviting us. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.